at the end of the sitting, I was, I had my eyes open and I was looking at that amazing tanka of the Buddha in the back. And I recommend it to all of you. You get to face this way and see our beautiful statues. But we get to face that way and see that beautiful tanka every time we open our eyes. And I find it so inspiring. So I hope you'll all take some time just to stand in front of it or I don't know if the hall's empty enough, just turn your seat around and sit facing that way for a while and enjoy the Buddha. Mm. So last night, Donald talked about the spiritual journey and he talked about its different stages. And as he talked, knowing, of course, that I was going to be talking tonight, an image and, and some, some information that I have kind of came up in my mind. I live on the big island of Hawaii now, and two days a week I'm actually Ranger Mary Grace <laughs> in my little brown uniform over in the national park on the volcano called Kilauea. And I often talk with the visitors who come to the park because I work in the interpretive section of how the islands were formed and how they were settled. So probably as many of you know, they were settled about 1,200 years ago um, by voyagers who came from other Polynesian islands. But all of those other islands are very, very far away. Hawaii is the most isolated landmass in the world, actually. And so these amazing adventurers came in their double-hulled canoes. And, you know, they're not terribly big boats, those double-hulled canoes. And they made their way following everything they knew about navigation, which was considerable. And some of them, there were some people who were the first ones to find the islands. So they probably didn't even know for sure that they were there or exactly where they were going. And they carried with them, you know, everything that they would need to settle in a new land. It's thought that perhaps, you know, they needed more space. The islands where they were were too crowded or perhaps they had lost some battle or other. No one knows exactly why they set out. But they brought with them what they would need to create a new life. They brought animals, and they brought plants, and they brought seeds, and they brought people, uh, you know, different people who could, who were still able to bear children uh, so that their life could start again. And, you know, you can imagine if you were setting out on such an adventure that you would pack as carefully as you could. Every item really thought about and considered putting as much as possible in what is essentially a small space. So I was thinking that we also need provisions for our spiritual journeys. And we need to provide ourselves with what we need kind of carefully so that we don't have too much baggage. Perhaps in our time it's a little bit more like packing to go backpacking, where every ounce counts. So this morning, Donald again, reviewed for us that most simple of instructions, that wonderful, wonderful basic instruction, just be with the body, just be with the breath. Every time you wander off, come back. It's so simple, 
It's so simple. And he quoted either last night or this morning, I don't remember which, that teaching from Manindra who said, just breathe and know that you are breathing and the whole of the Dharma will be revealed. So it's a teaching that is packed with nourishment, that instruction. Now there's so much there. And it's a teaching that you know you could do way worse than to do nothing else for your entire retreat. Just be with the breath, be with the body, come back every time you wander off. And at this point in the retreat, for all of us, simple is probably pretty good. Some of you have been here for a month already, and your life, we all know, because we've all been there in your shoes at different times, your life has settled into a pretty simple routine. I think I counted once. There's eight or ten things you can do on a retreat. It's not a lot. You know, you sit, you walk, you eat, you sleep, you do your yogi job. You know, it's just not, not too much. And so your life has become very simple. And in fact, you've probably begun to see how painful, complicated can get sometimes. And then for the other group of you, those who just arrived yesterday, um, you know, the beginning of a retreat can be really overwhelming. So many announcements, so many instructions, all the adjustments of settling into a community and learning how to live together, even, you know, what's an emergency and what's not, not an emergency. And so at a time like this, sometimes a really simple instruction is exactly what we need just what we need to get us underway. So tonight, I wanted to talk about the Buddha's most basic wisdom teaching. That teaching, which is familiar to all of us, that we know as the Four Noble Truths. And again, as I sat here, um, just as we were beginning, I was remembering the first time that we all gathered in this hall when we blessed this building. John was here, and I don't know if any of the rest of us were here or not. Um, and the Ajahn Amaro was with us and, and some of the other monks, and they came in chanting the Dhammachakka Sutta, which is the sutta which contains that teaching of the Four Noble Truths. Um, and I also then was remembering Ajahn Sumedho sitting up on this very stage, and this probably about where I am right now, and teaching over and over and over again about the Four Noble Truths. And every now and then he would just sort of bellow out into the room and he would say, the Four Noble Truths are enough teaching and practice for a lifetime. And then he'd give another talk about the Four Noble Truths over and over and over again. Because there's so much in it. It is such good food, you know. It is really the most basic and the most nourishing. I often think of this particular teaching as being quite like fresh bread right out of the oven, you know? And there's no time when fresh bread out of the oven isn't good, except for those of you on gluten-free diets. But even then, you know, probably fresh gluten-free bread would also taste pretty yummy. So no matter where you are in your practice and no matter how many times you've heard teachings about the Four Noble Truths, there's something to take in each time. So I want to talk about that, and then I want to talk a bit about how we can meet our own suffering and difficulties wherever we are on this retreat. 
So today, I counted, it's the 29th full day for those of you who came on January 31st. And it's the end of day one for all the rest of us. But, you know, I imagine today, it doesn't really matter so much, does it? There's been some struggle for everyone, perhaps quite a lot, in your practice today. And it's such, you know, struggle or no struggle, it's such a precious opportunity to get to be here. I've always loved that teaching, I think it, I think it comes from the Tibetan world, although I'm not sure that, you know, getting um, to hear, getting to have a human incarnation is very rare. It's about as rare as a blind sea turtle swimming around in all that ocean that the Hawaiians crossed, coming up right in the middle of a life preserver. You know, so that's, that's not really likely if you're a blind sea turtle in that great big ocean. So that's how rare it is to be human. And then it's even rarer to get to hear the Dharma ever. And it's even rarer to get to practice. So this is a very, very precious thing. Just being here in the simplicity, breathing, noticing what is, being with it, very simple and not at all easy. But meeting our suffering in a way that is transformative, in a way that seems useful, is an essential ingredient in our spiritual journey. And in fact, I think the ability to meet our suffering in some way that is helpful is the foundation of refuge. So how can that be? How can your suffering be the foundation of refuge? So recently, actually the last time I taught here in January, I was in the middle of a period of one of those viruses that was going around this winter that just wouldn't go away. I had symptoms from one end of me to the other, and I was not happy. I was really not happy, and I wanted it to go away in the worst way. I was not interested in this kind of suffering. And I was felt very supported. I listened to one of Carol Wilson's talks from the February retreat in which she talked about her work with her own migraine headaches and how much she wanted them to go away. So I knew I wasn't alone in this process of wanting my suffering to go away. And many of you probably have situations in your own lives that you would like to get rid of. You know, some health situation or life situation. And maybe even some of you came here thinking that maybe you were going to escape that particular situation by going on retreat. So much of our spiritual practice centers around the questions of suffering. Why? Why me? Why her? Why him? How can I not be terrified? How can I not be overwhelmed? And often, these are the questions that propel us into our journey. That's what starts us off. They provide the thread that we often follow. It keeps surfing, surfacing that same old suffering over and over and over again. It's a poem from William Stafford that I usually end up reading at almost every retreat I teach. He says, there's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. 
You have to explain about the thread, but it is hard for others to see. When you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. So I would suggest that this thread of seeking the ending of suffering is the thread that we often follow. And these stories, these really painful stories, for many of us begin very early in our lives. There's abuse, and there's abandonment, there's betrayal, and discrimination, and bullying, and physical handicaps, and injuries, and illness, all of the many, many really terrible things that happen to children in our world. And for some, however, the suffering comes seems to come later. Even for some of us, maybe a bit of a surprise, you know. We encounter the world of relationships and work, um, maybe the world of all the enormous social issues that, that we face these days, or environmental disaster, or you know, so many other difficult things. And we're startled then into realizing, oh, you know, the world is more difficult than I thought it was. And Donald pointed out last night that the Buddha himself was protected in that way. He, he grew up in a very protected environment until that time, those, those nights when he finally escaped I like to think of him as a young man who got a little itchy and he finally wanted to go out and find out what the world was really like. And he got out and he met those heavenly messengers of sickness and old age and death and the wandering monk and was astonished, as we are too. So last month, you know, I kept thinking, can this be me? You know, Mary Grace Orr is healthy, you know, and strong. And how can I be sick? You know, this isn't, this isn't supposed to happen to me. And of course, the answer the Buddha got was, yes, this can happen to you. And my answer was, yes, this is happening to you. And it will probably happen more, you know, to all of us as we get older and move towards our own death. So the Buddha, you know, he was set in motion by that monk. What did this man know? And we've, we too have often started our journeys being inspired by another person's practice or wisdom. And so he set out on the path and he found his early teachers and ultimately he found some answers. But it's interesting, isn't it? He didn't find the answers in the esoteric teachings of his time and he didn't find them in ascetic practices. But he found his answers from deep attention to his own present moment experience. So simple, so basic, so utterly packed with freedom. And when the time came, when he gave that first teaching that's in the Dhammachakka Sutta, he offered the simple and powerful teachings that have reverberated for the following 2,600 years. So here's how I like to sum up the Four Noble Truths. I kind of do them, I like them a little bit backwards. So this is number two followed by number one. When we get attached to life being a certain way, things get really rough and seem really unsatisfactory and downright wrong. 
huge stress and dis-ease result. And then number four and number three, when we live our lives without that attachment and with attention and wisdom and kindness, so the Eightfold Path, there can be an ending to that sense of disease and suffering. We can come to freedom. This is so simple, these teachings, and they are so deeply nourishing. You know, they are that fresh bread of our practice. And um, they can be heard again and again, and there is enough practice in them for a lifetime, because every time we go around with them, you know, I, I think of all the times my husband looks at me with an evil twinkle in his eye, and he says, attachment causes suffering. <laughs> you know, one more time. And uh, he's one of my best teachers. And so, you know, we, as we go farther along in the practice and deeper in our practice, we just see more and more layers, more subtle layers of where we are caught. So each of these truths has three important insights. So that all in all, there are 12 things that's important to see. So um, we see that there is dukkha in its many forms. And we'll talk a little bit more, more about dukkha in a minute. And we see that we need to understand it. And then we need to know that we have understood. What is dukkha? What is the nature of it? And then we see that the big problem is one of attachment, of desire for things to be other than what they are, and that this leads to the worst kind of suffering. And we see that we have to let go of that attachment. And when it's finally done, we know that we have done it. And then we see that we are not suffering. Voila, fabulous, not suffering. But we don't always see it. And so it has to be made real. It has to be realized. And then we have to know, we have to really know that we have made it real. And then finally, we see that there is a way to live our lives that leads to more and more letting go, to less and less attachment, and that's the Eightfold Path of wise view and wise intention, wise speech, action, and livelihood, and wise effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And we take that on as a practice. That's a path. I love it that it's a path. So that means you walk on it. You know, It's something that you can follow, and it will take you someplace. And gradually, as we walk on that path, we see that we have developed it. We see each truth. We see what needs to be done in order to understand it and to know it. And we see the result of that practice. So they really are the practice of a lifetime. And in many ways, you know, if you read through the suttas, you realize, I did this once, I did the whole Majjhima Nikaya in a sort of a, I wasn't trying to study it, I just wanted to get an overview, a feeling for what did the Buddha teach. And I realized the Buddha had a shtick. You know, it's just like John Travis has a, a shtick, a way of teaching. And Donald Rothberg has a shtick. And I don't know Winnie very well, but she probably has one too, I would imagine. And, and so, and I know I do. And the Buddha did too. And over and over and over again. They're the same basic set of teachings, much of which is the Four Noble Truths, comes up in, his, uh, in all the various suttas. And it's really important to say that nowhere does the Buddha say that you can't begin the path until you've stopped suffering. Isn't that great? 
You know, you don't have to get over your suffering in order to practice. You know, you practice by beginning where you are. So he begins by describing the human condition. There is dukkha, this thing that, that gets translated in so many different ways. And it's really important to understand dukkha is not pejorative. It's not like if you, if you have dukkha, you're bad. Dukkha is part of what is inherent in human existence. It's, it, it can sometimes be translated as out of round. That's one I like a lot, like when a wheel has sort of a flat spot on it and it keeps going kathunk, kathunk, kathunk. Or sometimes it's translated as unsatisfactory or not ever perfect or stressful. So it's that place where it's just not ever quite right. Ever, ever, ever. And he says there are three kinds of dukkha. First one I always love because it's dukkha, dukkha. So dukkha, dukkha, you know, it's like suffering, suffering. And that's the pain of human existence. It's the illness and the stuff that happens with our bodies and the fact that relationships have trouble and there's death. It's utterly inescapable. It's just part of the deal. But we want it not to be that way, don't we? And then there's anicca dukkha, which is the dukkha in which we deal with the utter impermanence of everything. Nothing lasts. Nothing lasts. Not even the good stuff. And the dukkha is that we want it to last. You know, we want to stop that process of incessant change. And then there's sankara dukkha, which is the way in which all formations are dissolving. And they're not solid and they're very fragile. And we crave solidity. We want it to be solid. None of this is avoidable. The pain, the impermanence, the dissolving, none of it is avoidable. And what brings freedom is when we decide that it's time to work on that, to meet it head on. And that work is really the difficult challenge of our practice. We endlessly try to squirm out of the dilemma, don't we? We want the pain to end. We want it to be permanent. Just this one time, can't it last? You know? And we don't want the dukkha that this wanting creates. And of course, all that squirming, what does that do? It's like you're digging yourself in deeper and deeper, and you just get more and more mired in dukkha. You've probably seen that, especially those of you who've been here for the month. You know, the more you wiggle and try to avoid and try to get out of whatever particular difficulty it is, the more you are in it, you know, just kind of up to your nose in it. And um, it's not very fun. In fact, it's very painful. He also saw that we get caught in cycles of dukkha, don't we? And we go around and around and we repeat the same variety of pain and difficulty over and over and over. The same relationship issues, the same work issues, the same addictive patterns, maybe even the same lifetime issues. And we get caught in all that dissatisfaction and stress and anguish and keep the cycle going. You know, we, looked, we all looked around the room yesterday and thought, wow, there's a lot of familiar faces here. You know, some of us have been practicing together for a long time. And we've spent many weeks on retreat here or in some of the other retreat centers. 
And so some of you are not so, you know, you're not, you haven't been here so long, but, you know, ha- have any of us ended our suffering yet? You know, has anybody? I don't imagine, if, if you raise your hand, I'm, we really want to talk to you, but um, I, don't, I don't think so. We, we get caught, don't we? We're so, you come on this retreat, you think, this time, this time it's going to be blissful or I'll really wake up and there you are doing the same old, same old again. There I am doing the same old again, you know, once again caught in some piece of dukkha or other. We all, you know, have these places where we just think it's, it should stop. It's, well, how can it be, you know? And um, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. And often on retreat, all kinds of worries come up. You know, I was thinking again about that period of illness I had. And um, it was a little complicated and then a mixture of symptoms. So I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I'm 73. So, what, you know, when you're 73 or 78 or 85, whatever some of us older folks are in the room, you know, there's always that little thing in the back because we've seen a number of people who suddenly get ill and then they're not here anymore. And so there's that question, well, maybe this time, maybe this time it's some kind of cancer. I probably had about eight different kinds of cancer during that month. And, or maybe it's, you know, heart disease, or maybe it's this, or maybe it's that. Maybe, you know, something really awful will happen. I don't like these thoughts. They're not nice thoughts. They're not pleasant to have in my mind. I'm not happy that the conditioning allows them to arise, but it does. And I'm very attached to being alive and reasonably healthy. So, you know, I have those worries, and you have those worries. And as I said, they often come up on a retreat. Because we're so sensitive after, you know, especially those of you who have been here for a while, but the rest of you are going to get there pretty quickly. And so these worries come up. Or maybe it's all the things in your life that you haven't really been paying too much attention to and you've been avoiding, you know, with all of the busyness of our lives. You know, with the, Winnie was doing a great thing of the, of the devices with her thumbs last night. I thought that was, you know, so maybe that's how you get out of paying attention to your suffering or... You know, um, we have comfort foods or, you know, we do all these different things that keep us from feeling our suffering. And then we come here and we see where we're not healed yet and where we're not fixed. But we can turn towards our suffering and towards our sense of stress and disease. I teach, I have taught a lot over recent years with my friend Bob Stahl. And he loves to talk about how you turn into the skid. And he grew up in Boston, and I did a lot of my growing up in Maine. And so, you know, in that part of the world, especially this winter, um, there's a lot of snow and ice. And so it's really important to learn how to deal with what happens when the automobile starts to skid. And, of course, the intuitive thing to do is, you know, you're skidding this way towards the tree or whatever, and you want to turn the wheel that way, which is not the thing to do. And it will only make matters worse. And the, what, what the instruction is, we all got it as adolescents in that part of the world, is turn into the skid so that the wheels will get some traction and then you can get out of it. And it's very counterintuitive. 
And, you know, it's counterintuitive in driving and it's counterintuitive here on your cushion. You know, and Carol, again, in one of her talks, talked about how important it was not to be in contention with what is, to turn into what is, not to push it away. So during this last week, one of our great elder teachers, Ruth Dennison, died. And hmm, she was 93, and she did it very, very well. And with many people around her who loved her and took such very good care of her. And you know, Ruth, any of you who knew her, Ruth was a great spirit. She would sit up here and say, Darlings! (laughs) <laughs> and then you would all sort of warm up a little bit, you know, Then she'd go on and teach the Dharma. And she was very dramatic, and she was sometimes funny, and she was very penetrating in her wisdom, and she was often a bit mischievous. And she gifted us all so much with her teachings. And although I never actually sat with her, I heard many Ruth Dennison stories, and I had the great pleasure of spending time with her at teacher gatherings. And I want to honor her tonight, actually, by telling one particular story which has stuck with me all these years, and it's such a Ruth story. So you could imagine, her retreat center was quite small. So you can imagine maybe a retreat that might have a third this many people in it. And a cook who was not too experienced, apparently, who was making millet for the meal. And the cook didn't quite know how to get the measurements for the millet to come out right. So instead of making enough millet for, let's say, 30 or 35 people, the cook made an enormous vat of millet. More millet than you've probably ever seen in your life. And Ruth said, well, we will eat millet (laughs) until it's gone. Now, I don't know about you. I mean, you're laughing, right? So we probably all know. I know I would be in contention with that reality. I'm not very fond of millet in the first place. And millet three times a day until it's gone. (laughs) But what if we're not in contention? What if you go, oh, well, it's millet, it's food. You know, it will nourish me. What if you go toward it? instead of fussing and pushing it away. Interesting, huh? What a teaching that must have been. You know, what a teaching it was just to hear the story. I hope it's a teaching for you as you hear the story. What if we go into the darkness of our suffering? What if we go towards the pain? Wendell Berry says, to go in the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark Go dark. Go without signs, and in that dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. So when we begin to look in the darkness of our own pain and suffering, that's a moment of profound turning. It's very important. And it's the the place of beginning to come to terms with our suffering is really very sacred, and it's the first step on the path to liberation. So we have to become students of your own suffering. So if you're suffering, you know, if you're in some difficulty while you're here, this is great. This is a chance to really 
go into it and to see what what is this what is this suffering like? You know? And again, Ajahn Sumedha would have say, said, This is the way my anger is. Anger is like this. My hurting knee is like this. My grief is like this. My illness is like this. And separation and loss are like this. This is what my fear is like. So we meet it. We go into it. We give it our attention. We meet what is uncomfortable. We meet it when we're caught in the wanting. Dukkha is like this. Wanting is like this. You don't get really interested in your wanting for things to change and go into that. Having to do what I do not want to do is like this. We so often move away, you know. We take the ibuprofen, we drink the glass of wine, we turn on the TV, we head back into the computer game or the phone app. You know, we just are really unwilling so much of the time to give our suffering any attention at all. So we miss an opportunity when we do this. Now, there was a great meditation teacher, Ajahn Liam, who described his fear as his worthy opponent. You know, that he had really learned a lot by wrestling with this worthy opponent. Now, can we do this with our own fear, with our own suffering? Did you wrestle with your suffering today? You know, did you get to know it better? And what did you learn about it? You know, what was the flavor of it today? Was it flat-out pain or loss or doubt? And if you didn't wrestle today, resolve to do so tomorrow. You know, really? You have so many opportunities. On re- retreat has gobs of opportunities to meet suffering. You know, it's the food, Some food might be difficult, or maybe you're filled with desire for the food, or maybe it's your body that's being difficult, or maybe it's your roommate, or the, you know, the person down the hall, or maybe it's life without your phone, you know, and all the sounds that you don't like, and it it just goes on and on. There'll be, you don't need to worry about it. There will be some suffering that will come along that you get to meet, almost certainly tomorrow. Can we meet our experience with an open and compassionate heart? Can we meet our dukkha and our suffering, just our own dukkha and our own suffering, just as you would meet any other suffering being, a suffering child or a suffering creature? So we'll be teaching practices of kindness and compassion and have the Brahma Vihara session every afternoon, all of the different Brahma Viharas. Most of you already know these practices, you know. And the thing that's really always been amazing to me is that mindfulness itself is a practice of compassion. Isn't that great? It is. It is inherently compassionate and inherently kind. And I do also often tell the story about being at Barry. I'd sat a long period of retreat. I was walking out in the woods. It was at the very end. It was winter. And, you know, I'm just walking along, kind of relaxing, because the retreat was pretty much over. And all of a sudden, this thought went through, and it was like an airplane going by with one of those banners, you know, hanging behind the end of it. And it said, Mindfulness is the best mother. I kind of went, What? (laughs) Where did that thought come from? I hadn't, hadn't really been thinking particularly about mindfulness in that moment. Mindfulness is the best mother. But it was a great teaching and a great gift because mindfulness is the mother we've always wanted. That just is 
with what we are exactly as we are in this very moment. That's what mindfulness does. It just meets what is. This is the way it is. From one moment to another, the breath, the sound, the sadness, the nausea, the fear. Carol again said, I copied this down because I really liked the quote, she said, freedom comes from recognizing accurately. So mindfulness can be for us, as it was for the Buddha, a way toward awakening, a way toward awakening. Recognizing the difficult and the unpleasant and the painful moment, and then the next one, and allowing it to be in our own hearts. Hmm. I'm going to read you this poem. It's, it's a little long, but I think I've got time for it. It's called Allow, and it's by Dana Falls, and she says, There is no controlling life. Try controlling a lightning bolt containing a tornado. Dam a stream, and it will create a new channel. Resist, and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow, and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in. The wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and success. When loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. It's important to remember that it's enough to begin with yourself, with your own pain. You don't have to begin with the pain of the entire world. That very well could be too much, too huge. So you can start by sitting here in your chair or your cushion or lying on your bed or on your cushions here in the hall. It's also important to say that as we recognize and meet these moments of suffering, It does not mean that we do not work for change. It only means that we have to take in the reality of the pain first to better know what actually needs to be done. We have to take in the reality of climate change and the reality of our many deep racial and class issues and all the suffering that that has caused in our world, the pain of the LGBTQ community, the pain of your spouse or your partner who's deeply dissatisfied with the relationship and wants to tell you about it. And we can only be creative and know what to do when we actually can meet that pain directly. And when we turn toward our dukkha, toward our own pain, when we really take it in, that's interestingly enough when the heart really begins to open. You know, the first noble truth, there is dukkha. And it's so often said, you know, you hear people say it all the time, Buddhism's all about suffering. And in a way, you know, it is. In a way it is. But there's more, right? It's not just about suffering and that's all there is. It's how, what happens when we meet it and take it in and then that's the place of freedom, you know. And it's interesting to think all the great spiritual leaders, all of the ones I can think of, you know, have encountered great suffering in their lives and wrestled with it. You know, the Buddha wrestled with Mara and Jesus wrestled with Satan and 
Mother Teresa struggled with many, many different kinds of things. Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela. The, the list goes on and on of these very great beings in the past and not so far past um, who have really struggled with suffering. And everyone in this room, everyone, everyone here has really wrestled with your own suffering and probably also with that of the world. You wouldn't be here if that were not true. It's an integral part of the sacred journey, this wrestling. A long time ago, in another lifetime, when I was involved with a Jungian group in San Francisco, I learned a teaching that came from one of the Greek healing mysteries, and it says this. It says, God sends the wound. God is the wound. God is wounded. And God heals the wound. So that really points toward that place that is so sacred about what we are doing here. There is inherent in existence dukkha and its many forms. We make it much worse by avoiding it. It's possible to work with it and to wake up to its nature. And this work is the door to refuge. The Buddha wanted all beings to be happy. He says so over and over. He wants us to wake up so that we don't have to be caught in the endless repetitive cycle of suffering so that we can follow the path to liberation. But he never says that we don't have to suffer at all, only that we don't have to be caught. You know, we need to recognize our suffering. We need to bow and to see where we're caught and to bow to that opponent, you know, your worthy opponent your fear, your restlessness, your lust, your physical pain. And that bowing is the acknowledgement that you've begun. And it may take years to finish, years, a whole lifetime. But then all heroic journeys seem to take quite a while. The Buddha assures us that waking up is possible. He wouldn't be telling us all of the things that he told us if that were not so. And Sylvia, who will be in my seat for the second half of this month-long retreat, loves to talk about the third and a half noble truth. And I've always appreciated this teaching, that at least there will be some ending of suffering, if not a complete ending of suffering. And so often, all of us have heard someone say, I don't know how I would get through this without the practice. I don't know how I would get through it. So, you know, for these next weeks, as... You rest here in this amazing place of refuge. We hope that you will learn more about your own situation and that you will wake up at least some as you encounter um, your own suffering. Wake up as you soften into your own experience. And then perhaps find in the practices of mindfulness, of kindness, of compassion, ways to hold that suffering, your own and others. So one of the things I do in my life now is um, I'm dancing hula. I don't think there are too many Dharma teachers who dance hula, actually. And there's always everybody's favorite verse in a long Hawaiian song, which is called the haina. And when you hear the word haina and then the words that follow, what it is is 
This is, it's a little summation of the story. So I thought I would do a little ha'ina for you in this um, talk. And so here's the ha'ina of the story. Here's the poem first. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. There is dukkha, stress, disease. Our attachment causes us huge suffering, creating the disease. It doesn't have to be this way. There can be an end. And there is a path to follow, which we'll be talking about in many ways for the next four weeks. This is a wonderful gift of nourishment, this teaching. It is the food for the journey offered to all beings by the Buddha. So let's just sit just exactly as you are. No need to put yourself in a formal position and breathe together for just a moment. So thank you very much for listening and please enjoy your walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.